Acts chapter number 1. Would you join me this morning? I don't want to do a long introduction. Uh, we will be having our meal afterward, and that will be right through this door. Uh, Acts chapter number 1. Thank you for being here. Thank you for those of us joining online and those that uh, would like to be here. I know of uh, some in particular, but uh, not able to, but soon, all right? Uh, Acts chapter number 1. So at Graceview, uh, if you know us already, you know this. If you don't, if you were to come, you'll figure this out. So we make a lot. We make much of the Bible. We make much of the Word of God. We make much of the words of Jesus. And we make much of all the Word of God. Certainly we make much of the words of Jesus, all the words of Jesus. But it occurred to me this week that I did not really note and emphasize what we covered last week. When we covered verses 6, 7, and 8 of Acts chapter 1, we were covering like the very last words of Christ on earth in this part of his ministry. This is the last thing that was covered uh, that he said. And so I didn't really point that out. It didn't hit me uh, until just maybe even a couple of days ago. And so I want you to think with me, what was the last thing? It's all important, but the last thing that Jesus talked about was that his followers were going to receive a baptism in the Holy Spirit and that that was going to give them power and the power was to go be witnesses. That's the last thing that said power's coming, the Holy Spirit, and the power is to be witnesses. Last week we talked about six different things that Christians benefit when we receive the Holy Spirit, but we emphasized that last one and that's the baptism of the Holy Spirit to empower our witness uh, and that's what he's able to do. And so in a moment, I want to read verse 9, what happens immediately after Jesus' last words. But quickly, let's review. Jesus, for 40 days, had been appearing and leaving and appearing and leaving and proving to his followers, the apostles, that he really is alive, that he had overcome death. He's just proving it by his appearance, by his words, by eating with them, revealing his wounds. And he keeps on talking about the kingdom of God. As he comes, he keeps talking. We don't know the details. keeps talking about the kingdom of God. And then in verse 4 and 5, he gave his followers a last, kind of not, not a last command, but he told them, go to Jerusalem and wait there for the baptism of the Spirit. So they were told to go and wait for the Spirit. And then, I'll put that all together. He keeps talking about the kingdom. They know that he's the Messiah, and they've been taught all their life the kingdom on earth, the thousand-year millennial reign of the Messiah is associated with the coming of the Messiah and an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And now Jesus has just told them, go to Jerusalem and wait for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. They're putting two and two together. You're the Messiah. You're talking about the outpouring of the Spirit. You keep talking about the kingdom. You told us go to Jerusalem, the capital city, and wait. And so that's what leads to their question in verse number six. Like, are you getting ready to set up the kingdom? Are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? They're assuming that's what's going to happen. I spent a, a good bit of time, the least of the three verses, but a good bit of time last week on verse 7 because the Lord cools their jets. That's what he does. He says, that, they want to know, is this why we're here? Are you going to restore? Are you at this time going to restore the kingdom? He says, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put under his own authority. And we spent a lot of time there emphasizing this. These men were the all-time, in the history of the world, the most enlightened, the most authoritative writers and speakers in the history of the world. The most authoritative, the most enlightened, far more than anybody who's written any kind of prophecy book since. And they're told they will not know the times or the seasons. 
And so the Lord is shifting their focus from constantly just deep diving into that and being consumed with the time of things. He shifts it over to verse 8. It's not that, but this. Wait on the coming of the Holy Spirit. When you receive power, the main thing I want you to be busy about is being a witness for me. Making disciples. We know this is the command of Christ. That's his last words. Now we read verse 9. Hopefully you have your Bible open. Look with me at verse number 9. Verses through verse 14. And when he had said these things. Did you get it? His last words. When he had said these things. As they were looking on. He was lifted up. So you got to picture this. Go ahead and tell you they're on the side of a mountain. Just outside of Jerusalem. Jesus finishes verse 6, 7, and 8. And when he had said these things, while they were looking on, he was lifted up. Don't know how far he got up before the next thing happened. And a cloud took him out of their sight. Seems pretty clear this cloud represents the presence of God. The cloud that led Israel in the wilderness. The cloud that filled the tabernacle in the holiest of holies. The cloud that was in the temple. This is no doubt. This represents the, the presence of God. This would be that cloud. So look again at the end. And a cloud took him up out of their sight. And while they were gazing, so there's 11 of them now, while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. So we know that Luke is saying, in essence, these two men, he's using different wording, but these two men are angels that are standing there. These guys are standing there, mouth gaped open, looking. Jesus just ascended into the heavens. And now these two men show up, verse 11. And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand Looking into heaven. Why are you just standing? Why are you continuing just looking into heaven? This Jesus. Note this phrase. This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven. Will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Why are you still staring at the sky? This same Jesus who you just saw go up into the heaven. Will come in the same way as you just saw him go into heaven. So there's. A rebuke that is in there, a gentle rebuke, but nonetheless, the angels have now gently rebuked the, the apostles, which leads then to verse 12. Then they, the apostles, returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet. That tells us where this happened. So they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. That's a measurement. It's a measurement of distance. So this was where this event happened was a Sabbath day's journey away. So they go back in the city. Then what? Verse 13. And when they had entered, the city is implied, they went up to the upper room. They went to the upper room where they were staying. And I don't know fully here. I haven't even read anyone who really talked about this yet. Is the they the 11? Or does the they extend out to more than the 11? Does the they that's staying in this upper room, does it grow and grow to ultimately it's 120 in next week's passage? We know that next week we're going to be looking at 120 people are in this upper room. Verse 13 again. And when they had entered, they went up, in, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. And here's a list. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew. And Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. Judas Iscariot is obviously not listed. He's dead. He's no longer part of the twelve. Verse 14, key verse this morning. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer. But it's not just them. They were devoting themselves to prayer 
together with the women. These women are the women that lived in Galilee that supported the ministry of Christ and his apostles. They followed him down to Jerusalem. And they were there at the Passover. And they were there when Christ was crucified. And no doubt once they realized he was resurrected, they apparently just chose to stay. And so another feast is coming very soon. And, but these women apparently didn't go back. They're like, something's happening here. The Lord keeps appearing here. And so now they're in this upper room with these men. Notice, these, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Look back at verse number 9. Let's notice that is a kickoff. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Would you notice three things with me, number one? First one is, very simple, it's the title of the message this morning. We kind of could have made a longer title. There's two main thoughts with a little bridge thought in the the middle. But we're looking at the visible ascension of Jesus Christ. We're talking about the visible ascension. And that, that word visible, guys, is key. Some people, when they read the Bible, I don't know why, they'll read the Bible. And anytime there's something miraculous, they want to downplay it, make it symbolic, you know, minimize it, just... Wipe it away. Say it's not really true. Guys, first thing I want you to understand is this is a real event. This is a real event. I want you to picture they're on the side of a mountain, Mount Olivet, which is a Sabbath day's journey from Jerusalem. It's not that far. And then the Lord finishes talking, and he just starts lifting up, and they're watching this whole thing. I remember there's been times in my life I've seen a balloon get away from somebody, and, and we just sit there and just watch it and watch it and watch it till we can't see it anymore. I remember being at, uh, what is that down there? It has the laser light show in Georgia right outside of Atlanta. Stone Mountain. Yeah, I remember watching that years ago, and me and my brother had a contest to see who could see the balloon last. My eyes were a lot better back then, and I could see it a really long time, and I probably lied saying I still saw it longer than I really saw it, just to beat him because we're very competitive. But... That's what the disciples are doing. This is a real event. So, guys, listen. There's some things we don't know. How fast did he rise? I don't know. How far did he get up before this cloud took him? I don't know. What was the expression on Jesus' face? Was he looking upward with excitement, heading back to the Father? Was he looking downward to the whole group? Did he make eye contact as he's going out of sight? Did he make eye contact with a couple of them or maybe even one of them in particular as he's leaving? I don't know this. But here's some things that we do know. This is a key event because it's something I've hit on several times now. Probably the last time I'll do this. This event is important because it distinguishes the ministry of Jesus himself on earth doing the work through his own physical body where the apostles are watching him. This separates that from now his new ministry where he is still working Through the church, beginning with his apostles, by putting his Holy Spirit in us. So where did he go? We know that he ascends into the sky. It's called the heaven. But we know from the rest of the New Testament, he literally goes into heaven, heaven. And where is he at right now? Where is he at? At the right hand of God. What's his posture? He is seated at the right hand of God. He is no longer doing work for redemption and trying to save people. He is literally seated at the... But what is he doing There's two main things that I would promote to you that he's doing. He's ruling heaven and earth. He's ruling heaven and earth. And he is interceding for the saints. That's what he's doing. So he left immediately. And there's this distinction here. This is a a real event. It's a very important event. But notice what did not happen. In a moment, I'm going to give you a note from the ESV study Bible that I picked up this week. And I thought, okay, that's a great point. Did you notice what did not happen? 
Before he left, there was no Mount of Transfiguration experience. He's had one of those where Peter, James, and John saw his body altered and it was glorified and it was bright and and it drove them to the ground and it humbled them. That doesn't happen this time. Literally, the Lord, as in the same body that he had been showing up and leaving for 40 days, hit and miss here and there for 40 days, that same body starts ascending. What does that tell us? Think about that. What does that tell us? He doesn't go into some other version of life. That tells me that that body that was glorified after his resurrection is fit for this world and heaven. It is fit and capable of withstanding the very presence of God. And in that same body, the Lord ascends. That's the body he has right now. Take this note down, the ESV Study Bible notes. So my thought I want you to get is his body doesn't change. It's the same body the ESV Study Bible writes. We'll be talking about this as we go into the coming month. The amazing miracle of the incarnation is not only that the eternal Son of God took human nature on himself. Let me say this. That's not the only miracle. Hear it again. The amazing miracle of the incarnation is not only that the eternal Son of God took human nature on himself and became a person who is simultaneously God and man. Simultaneously. But that's not the only amazing miracle. It continues. But also... That he will remain both fully God and fully man forever. This is one of the things we learn here. He is go- not only did he become that, he will remain that, fully God, fully man, forever. That's striking. Every now and then, Deanna and I will hop in the vehicle after doing something, random things. And we'll say, well, did that. Did that. Yep, did that. Close, close. Off we go. Did that. Jesus did not hear the plan of God, come to earth and take on humanity so he could die on a cross and pay for sin and then conquer death and and resurrect and then show everybody that he's resurrected and then now that I'm getting ready to go back to heaven, oh, now I'm I'm laying aside the humanity thing. He doesn't do like, did that, now back how I was throughout eternity past. No, he is going to continue to be fully God and fully man throughout eternity. Now look at verse 11. These two angels stand and they see that the apostles staring and gazing into the heaven. They have a question. Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing into the heaven? Can I just offer, there's a real practical reason. And then I want to offer the nature of the rebuke. What is the practical reason? Why are they standing gazing? Can I just say it's real simple. Their favorite person in the world, the person they love more than anyone else, has just left them, just departed Of course they're going to look. They love him. They're committed to him. He is now ascended. And they know that this is not like the other 40 days where he probably appeared to them them some 12 to 15 times where he shows up and he disappears. He shows up and disappears. This one has a definiteness to it. This has a finality to it. There's something very unique to this. And now they're struck and they're just looking into the head. They're kind of froze in the moment because they loved him. I remember being in Bible college years ago back in the 80s. I lived up north of Asheville, North Carolina, and Deanna lived up in Philadelphia. And our semester was over, our school year was over, and I was headed to Asheville to work for the summer, and she was headed back to Philadelphia to work for the summer up there. And I took her by the airport, and I remember watching her get on the plane, and I remember noticing which plane it was, and it sat there and sat there, and then it 
finally taxied down that way and taxied down that way. And it had sat there for a little while behind two or three other planes. And I just sat there and watched. And finally it came up. And then she took off. And then it banked. And it went over that way. And I just remember, long time, like probably 30 minutes, this process. And I'm just like that balloon. I watched and watched and watched until I, I couldn't see her anymore. Why would I do that? I could have been halfway home to where I was going, but now she probably beat me to Philadelphia on the plane, landed probably before I drove into Weaverville, North Carolina, in my car. Why? This is my favorite person in the world, and this is the person I love more than anybody else, and she's just departed, and it was a bad day. Why are you guys standing gazing into the heavens? But within that, there's a rebuke. Look at verse 11. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the heaven? Now, you say, Jeff, we know this point. Just taste it again. This Jesus, hear the rebuke and the comfort. This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come. Let's shorten that sentence. This Jesus will come. This Jesus will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Why are you standing gazing into heaven? Jesus will come. I like what William Barclay says. So he's wanting us to really, this, these angels are saying, and Jesus has already said he's coming back. The Old Testament prophesies that he will return. Jesus says, if I make a place, of course I'm going to come and take you to that place. I want to be with you. He prays to the Father. I want to be with them. I want them to be where I'm at. I want them to see my glory, my full glory that hasn't happened. So we're still awaiting this coming of Christ. The angel says he will come. A little short quote from William Barclay, he writes the following. He says, get it, history is not a haphazard conglomeration of chance events which are going nowhere. Read that again. History is not a, a, a haphazard conglomeration of chance events which are going nowhere. Do you understand? We live in a world that is increasingly growing with people who think that's what is happening in the world. Oh, just random things are happening. Life just sprung up. There's no real point to it all. You live and you die. You do the best you can. Try to finish on top. Survival of the fittest. Step on who you need to. Get to the top of the ladder. Life's short. No, everything is actually headed somewhere. The Lord Jesus is coming back. There is a plan. And this angel has been given a glimpse of it. Don't keep, here's the rebuke. Guys, don't just keep standing here gazing into the sky. You have a job to do. But you need to know that he will come back. Notice the end of verse 11. He says, it'll be in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Write down these four things. How will Christ return? It'll be in the same way. What does that mean? Well, number one, we know as we compare Scripture with Scripture that he will return to the same place. He will return to the Mount of Olives. Zechariah chapter 14, verse number 4, talks about the Messiah will come down. He will touch the mat. This will be the second coming. This is not the rapture where we go to him. This is the second coming. He will touch down, and the mountain will split. This is a real event. This is where he left, and this angel's been given, and it matches the Old Testament prophecy. Jesus will come back to the Mount of Olives. Number two. He will come back with the exact same body that he left with, the exact same one. So again, he shows the scars on his hand and feet. He tells Thomas to put his hand in the side where he was, had the spear applied. It's the same body. That body ascended. That body is at the right hand of God. That's the same body that will return. 
The nation of Israel is said in the book of Zechariah, they will look on him whom they pierced. They're going to recognize that the, the crucified one that really is our Messiah. Revelation talks about him sitting as the one who is worthy to take the scroll. What is he? As a lamb as it had been slain from the foundation of the world. As we go through eternity, when we see the Lord Jesus Christ, we're going to see him in this glorified, yet very recognizable, crucified body. That's the body. Third thing. How will he come back? He'll come back in a cloud. He left in a cloud. He's going to come back in a cloud with power and great glory. This was in Matthew that we looked at, Matthew 24, 25. It's also in Luke chapter 21. Luke wrote about it in his gospel. Now he's referring to this, what the angels had to say here in the book of Acts. How will he come back? Fourth thing. He will come back in a way that is very visible. He left, here's the only distinction out of these, he left with at least 11 people seeing him having, having left, but when he returns, it will be very visible, and people all around the world will see and recognize that Christ is returning. So the rebuke is this, guys, why are you standing there with your mouth gaped open, just staring into the sky? John R.W. Stott gives, I think, a pretty good quote. Why is this rebuke? So hear what Stott writes. He says, they had been commissioned. So get it? Why are you standing gazing into the sky? Why? They had been commissioned to go to the ends of the earth. They'd been commissioned to go to the ends of the earth, he writes. It was the earth, not the sky, which was to be their preoccupation. It was the earth, not the sky. You don't just stand, spend your life just staring at the sky. Yes, we love the Lord. We anticipate. We pray as the last two verses of the whole Bible, the New Testament. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. We want that. But we don't just stare doing nothing. Again, Stott writes, it was the earth, not the sky, which was to be their preoccupation. Their calling was to be witnesses, not stargazers. Catch the next line. The vision they were to cultivate was not upwards in nostalgia to the heaven which had received Jesus, but outwards in compassion to a lost world which needed him. That's the vision that needs cultivated. Not just this one staring into the sky. Stock continues. He says, it is the same for us. Speculation about prophecy and its fulfillment. An obsession with times and dates. These distract us from our God-given mission. Don't let the, those are great things and prophecy is great. And please understand, like, man, Jeff, this is too easy because in a row. Jeff must really hate prophecy, preaching, and teaching. No, it is awesome. It is great when it meets those four criteria in last week's message. You say, what are those? You got your binder with you? You can flip back and look at those four things. Prophecy is good when it does these things. You weren't here last week. should have been. Go back and listen to last week's message. But we don't want to let speculation and guesses and just wondering and deep dives into prophecy and this guy's opinion, that guy's opinion... And they're mostly wrong. And you have some wrong opinions on prophecy. You say, oh, I don't. Okay, well, then you apparently know more than these guys who are the most enlightened and most authoritative writers in the history of the world because they were told they will not know the times or the seasons. Don't let those things distract us from the God-given mission that we have. Now, y'all help me out. Help me out. I'm looking for words that start with the letter W. The apostles have been given two commands. The first one sounds like that's a strange command, but it actually will lead to the second command. They both start with a W. What were they told to do? The first one starts with the letter W. It's four letters. They are told to what? Wait. What's their job? This is what the angel is saying. Go 
to Jerusalem, wait, wait. Then what? After the Spirit comes, they are to witness. Wait and witness. Do it in that order. Be busy about these things. Quickly look at verse 12. So what do they do? Then they return to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, about a Sabbath day's journey away. So a Sabbath day's journey is just a measurement. It's a a distance that the rabbi, by the way, guys, listen, what I'm about to tell you is not in the Bible. You're not going to find it in there. But the Jewish rabbis, uh, they wanted to know how far could the Jews walk on on a Saturday, on a Sabbath, without breaking the Sabbath laws. And so they came up with a distance that is now uh, what's described here, a Sabbath day's journey. It was 2,000 cubits. So a cubit is an average man's arm length from the bend in his elbow to the tip of his fingers. Right? So normally that would be about 18 inches average person. I am an average height, but I have a little bit longer arm. So I have longer than 18 inch there. So my arm from here to here is not an actual cubit. It's a little longer. 2,000 cubits. Foot and a half, 18 inches, that's 3,000 feet. You say, how far outside of Jerusalem did this happen? Again, I'm trying to drive home the idea this is a real event. This was 3,000 feet, 0.6 miles, a little over 0.6 miles. Think of a football field. A football field is 300 feet. If you were to stack 10 football fields, that's how far outside of Jerusalem the ascension happened. I'm wondering was some dude mowing his lawn that day and looks over and like in the distance sees something and he can barely make it out but it looks like there's and then there's this and then this cloud and he's calling in honey you got to get out here and she's like what and he says there's a man floating in the sky and i can hear her right now have you been drinking again i told you it's only whatever time of day it was and he gets in big trouble but he really saw something that's not that far away this is a real event Write this note, and then we're going to our second thought this morning. Remember, the apostles for 40 days have seen Christ come and go. And I'm sure, again, I'm sure if I were them, I would be anticipating the next time Jesus will come. Well, that's done. Remember, there is a definiteness to this. This is different. There's a finality to this. Write this down. The apostles were not to wait for Jesus' next appearance. He does not say, go wait for me to come back. He says, go Wait, don't wait for his next appearance, but go and wait for his spirit to come who will then empower their witness. That's what you're going to wait to do. That's why this is an important event. Go back to Jerusalem. Wait there. When the spirit comes, that's the appearance you're waiting for. When the spirit comes, you're going to receive power and then go out and be my witnesses to the end of the earth, beginning in the city that you're in. Number two. Let's notice out of verse 13, um, not a greatly dynamic verse. It's one we could get lost in, so we're not going to this morning. Would you look at verse number 13 and notice with me the identity of Jesus' apostles? Simple approach, the identity of Jesus' apostles. Look at verse 13. Let's read it again. And when they had entered, the idea of entering the city, they went up to the upper rooms. First thing I want to notice is this word, the upper room. It does not say they went to an upper room. That's already happened back in the Gospels. Those that know the Greek language tell us there is a definite article here. The article is definite. You say, what do you mean, a definite? I could say, hey, could you go get a chair? You could go get any of the chairs. But if I were to say, go get that chair, could you get me that, that, the chair? That chair. That's a definite. Where did they go? They went to the upper room. 
What upper room? This would be the same upper room that six weeks earlier they had had the Last Supper with the Lord the night before he was betrayed and killed. Look again at verse 13. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. Who is the they? Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas the son of James. We have 11 names that are given. So guys, what I'm getting ready to do, and this is where I fight myself. I go back and forth. What I'm about to do is I'm going to take a minute and uh, a, few mo- a few minutes. I'm going to say some things that I know that I've talked about before. And this would have been back in Matthew 10. So it's been a little while, but I'm thinking, okay, they already know this, Jeff. Don't do it. But then I think, okay, some people wouldn't know that. And I'll remember, we forget things or we didn't really hear it the first time. And so just to point out a couple things in this section. Ready? The apostles are listed for us four times in the New Testament. Four times. Watch. I want you to make columns in your mind. I've put it on the screen before. I'm not putting it on the screen today. You're going to use your mind. Imagine. Over here is Matthew 10. You got it? This is Matthew 10. Here is Mark 3. Here is Luke 6. And here is Acts 1. You got it? There are these four passages. Beneath these references is a list of the apostles. Well, they're put in random orders. The names are not always the same. They're not always in the same order. But, and some of you are like, oh, I do remember this. And some of you are like, okay, what's the point? Go back over here. Look at the whole of them. And here's what we're going to do. We're going to highlight line number one, the first name. So there are different names. It's the same people, but different orders in each each list. But I want you to highlight in your mind, all the way across all four lists, the first name is always the same. It is always the same. Everything else isn't always the same, but that name is always the same. Simon Peter is always listed first. Is that just by an accident? No, it seems to be conveying something. And we do notice that Jesus had things to say to Peter that he didn't say to others. He seemed to be not the leader, but a first among equals. He was equal with him, but he's almost like a first among equals. But watch, let's go back to our list. Jump down to the fifth line. The fifth line, all the way across, it's the same person mentioned every time. His name is Philip. Philip's always listed fifth. Skip down, if you would, to the ninth line. The ninth name in all four lists is always James, the son of Alphaeus. So what does that tell us? If that's all we had, we could probably make some conclusions. Man, there's these random orders, but Peter's always first, Philip's always fifth, and then James, the son of Alphaeus, is always ninth. It seems like there's some groups that are there, and these guys must be the leaders. Well, maybe, maybe not, but that is actually seemed to be confirmed when we realize this. Names 2, 3, and 4, all the four groups, names 2, 3, and 4, it's the same three guys, different order. Go down below the fifth one, names number 6, 7, and 8, same three guys every time, different order, always under Philip. Go down to the last, and the, and the names number 10 and 11, and 12 in the other groups, Judas Iscariot is always listed last, but in this one, 10 and 11 is the same guys always listed under James, the son of Alphaeus. And it's real simple. I don't have some great point to make from it all other than to say this. It appears that among the disciples, the Lord had subgroups among the 12. Why did he have subgroups? I don't know. Maybe they had tasks to do. Maybe they had different gifting. I don't know. Maybe it was for accountability. Maybe the Lord quickly called, hey, you, you three guys, get over here. Have your guys do that. I don't know. But it seems pretty clear the Lord had groups within the 12. He put them off. 
We know that God is a very organized God, and Jesus is God, and he's an organized person, and it seems pretty clear. Now, that's verse 13. Would you skip back to verse 11 for the last thing I want to say about the identity of the apostles? And again, this is also review, and I know you know it. We're going to review. Look at verse 11. These two men in white robes, angels, said to the eleven, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing into heaven? Men of Galilee. How many of the apostles were men of Galilee? How many? All. Write this down. All of the apostles, with the exception of one. Which one was not from Galilee? Any guesses? Judas Iscariot. He's the only one. He's gone. All of these men who remain, all of them are from Galilee. What's the lesson? Is there anything important here? Yes, guys, listen. These are men of Galilee. They're Jews, and then you have Galilean Jews, and you have Judean Jews. Israel's leaders down in Jerusalem are Judean Jews, and they look down, not geographically, they look northward, but they look down at Jews from Galilee as second-class citizens. Those are second-class Jews. This is the idea among people. So here's the thought. When God, when Christ comes to earth, and he could have called anybody to be his most authoritative Leaders that are going to begin his kingdom and carry out his, and write down his words. He could have picked anybody. What does God do? He uses people, normal, ordinary men that would have been looked down as almost like lower class, second class citizens. We compare that with God's normal pattern and here's what we find. To finish your note, write this down. This illustrates for us that God delights in choosing and using Ordinary people. God just chooses when he picks his people. Every now and then he'll, he'll choose someone that is really, really smart. Or re- very powerful. Or really wealthy. Every now and then. But not very often. Hey guys, I want to propose to you. If you were to know what all that's going on around the world in the kingdom of God today. Just know this. The vast majority of the great eternal work of God's kingdom that's being done. Building toward that future kingdom. It is being done by normal, ordinary people. Normal, ordinary people. So here's how you ought to hear that. You ought to be thinking, if, if you ever tempted to think, well, I'm just an average person. I'm nothing special. I, I'm just going to be a church attender and maybe drop some money in the plate. And that's all that I'll do in my Christian life. Don't buy that lie. God uses order. Look at the people he's using. Just look around. They are normal, ordinary people. First Corinthians chapter number 1. We'll not turn there. But it has not been God's pattern to come and say, I'm going to pick all the wealthiest 5%, and I'm going to pick the top 5% smartest. I'm going to pick the 5% that are born in nobility, and I'm going to pick the, you know, the most powerful, powerful, the top 5%. That's how we hire for our businesses. That's not how Jesus runs his kingdom. He just picks average people. Every now and then, he'll pick an apostle Paul that does have great gifting, above apparently above these other men. But his great work is so often done. By just ordinary people. So please, don't go through life thinking, God can't really use me. And don't ever do this. When you see God working in one of our young people around here, don't ever think, well, it's just so-and-so. God can't do anything great through them. They're nothing special. These are the people God uses. Fan the flame in that. And then number three this morning. Would you notice in verse 14, the priority of prayer. Would you notice with me the priority of prayer? It's undeniable. Can't miss it. The priority of prayer. 
But it's going to take me a minute to get there. Why? Because I'm going to start at the end of the verse, and then we'll come back to the heart of it. And once again, I'm going to confess to you, I'm getting ready to talk about some stuff that I, you've heard me say before. But my job is not to come up with new things. My job is to preach the text. Look at verse 14. All these, you had that list of 11, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. All these with one accord were devoting, all these with one accord were devoting, so it's talking about the 11, they were with one accord devoting themselves to prayer together with the women, we talked about them, the women that, that followed the Lord from Galilee, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So let's start at the end just to get the identity of some of these, eventually we're going to say 120 people who are in this upper room. Who are these people? Well, some are called his brothers. And if you have like an ESV Bible, you probably have a notation there. And the word brothers there is the idea of brothers and sisters. So the Lord's brothers and sisters, his earthly brothers and sisters are in the upper room. So here's the review that I'm almost skipped, but I'm not going to. It's like, I think they already know this, Jeff. Okay, let's just drive it home a little deeper. Jesus has half-brothers on earth. He had them. And these were his half-brothers because Joseph was not his biological father. The Holy Spirit was his father. But Mary was his mother, and Joseph and Mary were, were their parents. We know that he had how many brothers? Does anybody know the answer to that? How many brothers do we know he had? He has four brothers. Again, I'm not going to turn there. Their names are James, Joseph, Judas, called Jude, and Simon. We know he has four brothers. They're listed in the Gospels. And I'm going to propose to you that he has at least, at least, probably more, at least three sisters. Because, again, a verse in the gospel says, are these not his brothers? And it names the brothers. And his sisters, are they not all with us? His sisters, are they not all with us? That tells me he has more than one sister because it didn't say, and his sister, isn't she with us? No, it's his sister. He has more than two sisters because it would have said, aren't these his brothers? And are not his sisters both with us? It doesn't say both. It says, are they not all? In other words, like, here's the name of four brothers, and he's got all these sisters. Jesus came from a big family. But here's the strange thing. Again, John, in his gospel... Going back, if we could, eight months before where we're at here, John was writing about a different feast. And here's what's surprising. Just eight months before this, we know that Jesus' brothers and sisters were not believing in him. They were even skeptical and mocking. You go into the feast, if you're going to keep doing all this stuff up there in the, among the Galileans, you ought to really go down there to Jerusalem and let the big boys see if you're going to keep doing all these miracles. Aren't you coming? You're going to the, this is only eight months earlier, and they're not yet believing in him. But we know that they eventually put their faith and trust in Christ. You say, when did they do this? I don't know. Don't know when they got saved. I know that they eventually put their faith and trust, not in their brother, but in Jesus as Lord and Savior. How do we know this? Probably, the best guess is we know that Jesus, after his resurrection, reveals himself to the oldest brother, James, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He gives a special revelation in his post-resurrection appearance to his brother James. Possibly James takes that. Maybe James gets saved at that moment. Or maybe James is already saved. He sees him and then he ends up convincing the other brothers and sisters. Winning them to Christ. I don't know. All I know is here in verse number 14. Jesus' brothers and sisters, they're all saved. They're all born again. How do we know? 
because they're said to be in one accord with the people of God who do believe in Jesus. They are going to be filled with the Holy Spirit in chapter number 2. We know they're saved. They're not just listed here. They're not just hanging out. They are born again. They're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. James and Judas, Jude, are going to write two of the New Testament books. So we know this. Now, second thing in this text, just at the end, before we go back and hit the, the heart of verse 14, is where it says, who else is there? So you have the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So who all is there in the upper room? You have Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So this is another one of those things. It's the last time, okay? You ready? It's the last time I'm going to refer to this as being, well, maybe not. There's one there. I'm doing some review today, but that's okay. It's that season of the year where we're going to start talking about Mary, right? And we need to honor Mary. Mary deserves great honor. But the fact we need to understand is that Mary, the mother of Jesus, is listed here. Don't you write this down. This is the last mention of Mary, the mother of Jesus, in the book of Acts. She's mentioned in the first, we get 14 verses in. She's mentioned, she's not mentioned again in the book of Acts. But it's more than that. She's not mentioned anywhere else in the rest of the New Testament. Now I realize we live in the southeast and the Bible Belt. and We're not in the northeast where this would probably be a little more abrasive to some. Taste what I just said. Yes, Mary is mentioned in Matthew. And Luke gives a, gives a lot of, of the early account there. Matthew and Luke in particular, those early years around the birth of Christ. They seem to give the most detail. Mark does as well. And John mentions her there at the cross. But she doesn't dominate the scene. Here we get to the end. Here we get to the beginning of this. But we're in this upper room. And what do we notice? Mary is mentioned, but she's not mentioned again anywhere else. How many books are there in the New Testament? How many total? 27. We're four books in plus 14 verses. She's mentioned and not mentioned. Here's, here's, I just got to ask this question. Why is Mary, the mother of Jesus, so prominent in Roman Catholicism? I cannot tell you why. It is a perversion. It is a twist. It's a lot of adding. And they, they really exalt her to a position she really shouldn't be put in. Should she be honored? Absolutely. Did God choose her of all the people to give birth to his son? Absolutely. But they have made way too much of her. Quickly, let's write this down. Notice three things. I'll even mention a fourth one about Mary. What do you notice in this scene? She is in no position of prominence. She's just not. She's not in a position of prominence here. She's mentioned, but she's not like the leader in any way. You're going to see that happen. You're going to see next week that Peter is going to kind of take the verbal leading thing. It's not Mary. Would you even notice that her, her oldest son, James, below Jesus, her second oldest son, James, and Jude, when they write books in the New Testament, they don't mention mom. And all that's happening in the church as it's just starting out, Mary is mentioned early, but then she's not mentioned again. She's in no position of prominence. Number two, would you notice this? She is not prayed to. Nobody in the upper room is praying to Mary. Nor is she sought to pray for other people. Mary, it's so good to have you. We know you have this inside track to God the Father. We know that you have this inside track to Jesus. And now that he's at the right hand of God, would you pray for us? That's not happening. They're not asking Mary to pray for other people. They're not praying to Mary as though she has power to answer prayers herself. What do we find? Number three, Mary is praying alongside all of the others. 
Notice the words together and with. She's praying together and she's praying with. And not on your handout, as I've said so many times, she is certainly no longer a virgin, even though the Roman Catholic Church still loves to refer to her as the Virgin Mary, even today. She's got a bunch of kids in the upper room. They're her kids. So that's a clear abuse of a, do- of a doctrine. But notice with me three things this morning in, in this text. Look at verse 14 again. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together. Let's notice three things. Number one, they were united. This is real simple. If you were to read this 25 times, you guys would come up with these same points. This is nothing like original. But this is the point of verse 14 that we need to walk away from. They were united in heart and mind. They were united. These people, it's going to eventually, we get some idea of, of the content of the people, but we know there's going to be 120. These 120 people, they're united in their heart and in their mind. They're thinking. They're united together. This is amazing. You say, why is it so amazing? you got 120 people united in agreement. They're of one heart. They're of one mind thinking about things. But who are they being led by? They're led by 11 men. Who just six weeks earlier, let this sink in, six weeks earlier, these 11 men were so consumed with pride. And they were so consumed with this idea of their specific placement and ranking within the coming kingdom of God. They are wearing Jesus out with questions. Hey, where am I going to be? Can I be here? Can I be on your right? My brother on your left? Their mothers are vying for Jesus to give favors. Would you let my son be on your right and my son, other son on your left? They're so consumed, they get rebuked and they still do it, even up to the night before the Lord's killed. They're consumed with their rank. They, they love each other. They're co-workers, got a lot of experience, seem to be going the right direction together, but they see each other as rivals. These men, six weeks earlier, it's like, can I hear? No, no, not them. I want to be over them. They're so consumed with pride and rank. They see each other as rivals. Do you guys understand? Let's take a moment. Sometimes among Christians, there's a lot of rivalry. Sometimes among churches, there's rivalries. Sometimes among preachers, there's rivalries. I used to coach basketball, and I've seen this. I've seen a more talented team that I knew had rivalries among two or three key players end up having not as good a season as a little less talented team who none of the players cared who got the credit. Rivalries will kill a team. Rivalries will kill a business. And rivalries will kill a church. I want you to write this down. And if you get time, maybe even go home and think about it. I'm not going to develop it deeply. But the second part of your note Rivalries occur when two things happen with Christians. Rivalries occur when Christians are consumed with pride. That's one. We're just consumed with pride. And the other is when Christians fail to see the size and the importance of the mission that Christ left to us. When we're consumed with pride, we start looking at each other as a threat. And when we're consumed consumed with pride... Rivalries will occur when we don't understand the size of the mission that Jesus left. And when we don't understand 
the nature and the importance of the mission that Jesus left. Y'all help me out. What is the size of the mission Jesus left for the church? What's the size of it? How would you describe it? I heard somebody say it. The whole world. Worldwide. If we have a worldwide mission, do you want to be left all by yourself trying to accomplish a worldwide mission? How important is the mission? What's at stake? Think about it. This mission of Christ that its people have been told to carry out. What's at stake? How important is the mission? We see, well, it's worldwide. One person, one little church, one little denomination, one little country. We're not going to be able to do it. We're going to need some other people. How important is the mission? What's at stake? What's at stake? The eternal, let that sink in. The eternal souls of people. Flipped over to a football game yesterday. There was a scanning in the crowd. I forget which one it was. It probably hit five, six, seven hundred people. And a guy had a toboggan on and he had an Asian face. And I don't know why he stood out to me, but the thought hit me. That guy has an eternal soul. Wonder if he's ever heard about Jesus. Wonder if that guy's a Christian. When we realize the size and the scope and the importance of the kingdom, and then all of a sudden we start hearing that God's doing good things in another ministry or through another person or through another uh, through another preacher, then all of a sudden we're not going to be jealous about that. We're going to praise God for that. So if you catch yourself, is, ask, ask in your heart, is there anyone in your past that when you hear a good report about what's going on in their life, how God is using them, people are getting saved and, and discipled, and their disciples are actually making disciples, and you hear that report, if it threatens you or gives you angst, you know what you ought to do? God, I am not seeing the side of the ministry. I'm seeing it as something we can do. I'm over here worried about prestige and our little part in the vineyard. Lord, I ought to be praising you and thanking you for that. Show me the importance and the size of what you've called us to do. Go, if you would, Philippians chapter 2. So we're talking here about they were of one accord. Philippians chapter 2. I'm not going to dig into it. Let's just note it. Okay? Just note it. Philippians chapter 2, verse number 1, Paul's in prison. I personally think, again, this is standing here today. I think the Philippian church might be Paul's favorite. They definitely supported him financially. They got the idea of missions. They, again, they sent him money. They sent him support. He's in prison. They've actually, at this occasion, they've sent him a care package. So he's received the care package delivered by one of them, a man named Epaphroditus. And so Paul is going to write a letter back, and he's going to send it back with Epaphroditus. Go tell them this. And one of the things that he wants them to know is comes up in chapter 2. Look at verse number 1. So Paul, very thankful for the care package, says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ. By the way, you see the word if. Everybody catch it? If. That's not like if, possibly, you think so. No, it's this. Since. Everything he says in verse 1 is actually true. And so he's actually building on that. He's saying, since this, if this is true, and it is, then this ought to happen. Watch verse 1. Hey, Philippians, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, I don't know about you, but I get a lot of encouragement by being in Christ. If there's any comfort from love, there's a lot of comfort comes from knowing that Jesus loves me, and I'm comforted by knowing that I love him. If there's any participation in the Spirit, I am participating in the Spirit. I have the Holy Spirit in me, and I'm baptized in him. If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, if any of those things are true, since those things are true, here's what Paul says. 
Hey, Philippians, complete my joy. Complete my joy. You make me joyous. Now complete my joy. How? By being of the same mind. Having the same love. Being in full accord and of one mind. There it is twice. He really, like, be of the same mind. Have this one-heartedness. Verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count. You know what count means? Consider it so. Grace for you. What if we just did verse 3? Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Then what would happen? Verse 4 would happen. Let each of you look not only, not only, that's key, Look not only to his own interests. Here's what he's saying. We have our own interests. I have my own interests. i got to take care of my own interests. But I need to not look only to my own interests, he says, but also to the interests of others. You see what Paul is doing? He's calling God's people to a one-mindedness, one heart, one spirit. Why? Divided churches lack God's power. Paul calls Christians to be like-minded. He calls Christians, focus on our common ground. Listen, let's focus on our common ground we have with other Christians. Paul is calling us for, to be united in spirit, united in purpose. Now, guys, listen to me. Let me tell you what this doesn't mean. This does not mean that Christians are to be of like-mindedness in politics. Christians will not be of like-mindedness in politics. You need to understand that. This isn't talking about, well, we need to be like-minded in all of this. We're not going to be like-minded. Christians are not going to be like-minded in economics. And so if you think, I can't understand how that person could call themselves a Christian and be in that party and vote for that person. Careful. They're thinking the same thing about you. We're not going to be like-minded about our favorite sports team. We're just not. Y'all do know everybody in the country is not a Clemson fan, right? <laughs> and y'all do know there's a smaller segment, but a, a representative here. They had a good night last night. Not everybody's a Carolina Gamecock fan. And there's hardly any of us Tar Heel fans. And boy, we had a not good night last night. We stunk it up. We're not going to be united on, on our teams. We're not going to be united on fashion. And we're not going to be united on music styles. Have you ever felt like you've been in a church where like those four things are the main things that this church is united on? You ever been in a church that's like, I'm in a Clemson Republican conservative hymn singing church. <laughs> They're united on these things. And suits and ties and dresses. You ever been in those? Like, oh, this is a Clemson church. Over there's the Gamecock church. This is the Republican church. Over there's the Democrat church. And here, here's, the, here's the gauge. The bigger those things are in your world, the more important they're going to be for you. And you're going to link up with people based on those things. And I'm going to tell you, when you dig in basing up your linkage and your commonality with other Christians supposedly on those things, you are neglecting the main things. Write this thought down. When Christians live in tune with God's Spirit, we will be united on the fundamentals of the gospel. When we live united, when we live in tune, I'm sorry, when we live in tune with God's Holy Spirit, 
If the Holy Spirit in me, I'm in tune with him, and it's the same Holy Spirit that's in tune with you, yeah, we may not agree on politics. And we may not agree on fashion and style and styles of music. That's fine. We're going to have to we need some variety in this world. But we will agree on the, on the fundamentals of the gospel. Just before we finish back in Acts 1, 14. Would you look? You're, you're in Philippians 2, I hope. Look over at verse 27 of chapter 1. Flip over there. Paul's in prison. He's just said, hey, I think I'm going to get it re- released. I don't know if I'm going to get released or not. I think I'm, I'm going to get a not guilty verdict from Caesar. Look at verse 27. Only of chapter 1, not on the screen. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. You see it? Whether I'm there or not, I hope to come see you. But Philippians, I hope what I hear is that you guys are striving Working, laboring, side by side, all going the same direction. What? For the faith of the gospel. He has to call down a couple of women in chapter 4, verse 2 or so. He names them out. Hey, I want you two to get along. Something was starting in this church. I'll tell you what I hope. I surely hope there's no one in here this morning that can't go in here a moment and sit down with anybody else in this church. I hope you can say, I can sit with anybody and get along. I have nothing against anyone. There is a time for division to be in churches, and that's when truth is being compromised. But if truth is not being compromised, and it's just other frivolous little things, then somebody's not in tune with the Holy Spirit. Somebody's not. need to figure out who that may be. You understand? We're not just asking God, Lord, would you grant us lack of conflict? Lord, please get us lack of... No, we want more than a lack of conflict. We want unity, striving for the faith of the gospel. Number two, back in Acts chapter 1, verse 14. So all these, amazingly, somehow, things have changed from just a few weeks earlier when they were so selfish and prideful. All these with one accord. Have you ever, some of you are going to say, Jeff, you just described my family. Have you ever seen one of those families that uh, they get the whole family together every year for a vacation? Right? You ever seen that? It's like the standing thing every year at this time. We all go here and listen. These families love each other. They love each other. They have a lot in common. They, they, they are blood relatives. But they're going to stay a week together. And they have learned through the years by day four, they are so on each other's nerves. They, have, they, ought, they make sure we have plans for Thursday, right? Because we're going to get together on Saturday. It's going to be great. I haven't seen you so long. We love each other. But boy, by Thursday, you got to get me out of that house. And, and then they can't wait for the vacation to be over. I don't know if you've ever been, seen that done or heard about it. Or you're like, yeah, yeah, that's us every summer. Um, these are people that love each other. How do you have 120 people? Not 20. Not 25. Same blood. No, no, no. How do you get 120 people longer than a week to stay in one accord? How is that possible? Well, I think it's this next thought. Quickly. Number two. They were devoted to prayer. They were devoted to prayer. You see it in verse 14? So not only were they united in one heart and mind, but these people, the early church here, verse 14, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. Guys, can I split hairs just for a second? Now, I might be stretching this too much. I'm going to throw it out to you. The text does not say that all these devoted themselves to prayer. 
Did you catch that? It doesn't say they devoted, they were born accord and devoted themselves to prayer. Luke's gospel finishes by saying that they also went into the temple and they were praising God. But we know that they're also coming back and apparently spending a lot of time in this upper room together. And they're staying in one accord. How? Look at the wording. All the, I, I wouldn't have written it this way. But Luke writes, he says, all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. Can I offer to you the following? Write it down. Were devoting themselves seems to imply to me that they had to keep devoting themselves to prayer. They have to keep devoting themselves. It's not like, oh, yeah, we devoted ourselves to prayer, man, and it just, it just lasted for the whole 10 plus days that we were up there. Just kept lasting and lasting. No. They had to keep devoting. They were devoted. I don't know about you guys. I have to keep. I, you said, Jeff, you're going to talk to us about being devoted to prayer? I am. But I have to keep devoting myself to prayer. I have to keep, do it, keep doing it. My next questions are very important. Your mental engagement, your involvement, your being specific will determine how much you get out of this. Simple question. I want to ask it and I want you to go. I want you to start naming things. Here's the question. What are you devoted to? Think. Be honest. Name it. Any, whatever it may be. What are you devoted to? Man, I wish we had Wednesday night. We'd have a handout, and you'd be writing down things. Can I ask it slightly different? You, is your mind still going? Don't just stop. I got one. No. What are the things you're devoted to? Let me ask it a different way. The people who know you the best, who know your life, and if we had followed you for the last year, what would we say they are devoted to those things? These are in the room. They're all fine. They're all fine things. Some are excellent things. Some are good things. Be honest. Are you devoted to the TV? Is this you? There's that one stream series. And man, when I started, I didn't know there was going to be seven seasons. But every time a new episode comes out, i got to watch it. I'm committed. I'm devoted. Be honest. Say, yeah, I'm devoted to my Netflix I'm devoted to my whatever show that is. Don't miss it. Love it. Are you devoted to video games? Be honest. My life reveals I'm devoted. Okay. What about this? Are you devoted to the Lord? Be honest. Would those that know you would say, oh, she's devoted to the Lord. Would this be said? He or she, they are devoted to their marriage. It's been rocky. It's been tough. Are you devoted to your family? There's a lot of people, if everybody that knows you, like, say what you want about that guy. He is devoted to his family. She's devoted. Are you devoted to your job? This is a lot in the room. Like, it's not a bad thing. You're like, you're devoted to the job. Oh, do I have to stay later? Okay, I'll do it. Oh, got to push through on this, finish this. All right, I'll do it. Devoted. This is true. We're devoted to our favorite team. I'm devoted to mine. I got the, I got the DVR set for noon. When the football fails, you always can go to the basketball team, right? It's a good thing. So I'll be going home and watching that in a little while. I'm a devoted fan. Are you devoted to church? Would this be said? He or she's devoted to church. Exercise. There are people. Like, they just know. 
They are so devoted committed, and it's admirable. Some, it's like a diet. Like, man, they've done it before, but this time, this is amazing. People are like, they are really devoted to this diet. I said, all that to say this. Be honest with yourself. Are you devoted to prayer? You. Are you devoted to prayer? Would the people who know you and your schedule, would they say, Mom's devoted to prayer. They see it. Dad's devoted to prayer. If you're married, would your spouse say, he or she is devoted to prayer? Are there any parents here, don't raise your hand, that would honestly say, I've got, I've got one of my kids, they're devoted to prayer. What kind of church would Grace View be? What a question. What kind of church would Grace View be if every attender and member prayed just like you do? Would that be a good thing? If we all prayed just like you. You're going to set the tone. Everybody's going to pray just like you. Did we increase in our prayer or did we just go down? Do you need to redevote to prayer? And here's the answer. Is there another time in your life when you were more devoted to prayer than you are right now? If the answer is yes, then you need to redevote. These people were devoting themselves to prayer. And then lastly this morning. Why were they in such one accord? Well, they were devoted to prayer together. And they were devoted to prayer together. Their prayers were corporate. They just didn't pray. It's not 120 people in each their little separate spot. It's 120 people praying together. Their prayers were corporate. So here's those last review. I said there would be another review. I want y'all to help me. I'm going to ask a question. And when you know the answer, raise your hand. I'm not going to ask you to say it out loud so you could lie, but don't. Okay? Through the years, I have taught about three types of prayer. Three types of prayer. There's this kind of prayer. This is kind of where we do it. When we do it. Y'all with me? So there's three types of prayer that I've taught on before. Would you raise your hand if you think, I, rem I remember all three of those types of prayer. Would you raise your hand? I see some here. I see quite a bit. Looks about like 20%. Okay, here we go. So let's review. I'm glad. I'm glad I'm touching. I was going to skip. Here, here we go. There's prayer closet prayer. Private. No distractions. There's what I call daily fellowship with God. So there's the prayer closet by yourself. Just you and God. Whether it's the morning or the evening. whatever I, I do morning. But then there's the daily fellowship with God. And that's amid the distractions. Just talking to God through the day. And then there is corporate prayer. Now y'all help me. Private prayer closet prayer. Talking with God through the day. And then there's corporate praying together with other Christians. Which one of those is hard to do? Which one of those is hard to do? I heard closet. Which one's hard to do? Like honestly, like, like to Jeff you mean like to really, really be praying? Like really be talking to God in it? Which one's hard to do? What is it, Faith? All of them are hard to do. I find prayer closet prayer very hard to do. I find daily fellowship very hard to do. I find corporate prayer the hardest to do. It's just when I'm praying with you guys, it's hard for me to concentrate. But we're told to do it. I find that corporate prayer is not only the most difficult, guys, it's the most neglected. Of the three, it is by far the most neglected. 
Thursday night, please, please don't turn, hang with me. Thursday night, I was trying to finish, and I'm sure it took me over 30 minutes. I got this wild hair. I said, I just want to know how many times does corporate prayer come up? I didn't read it, and I'm thinking, I want to know this little stat for myself. So I just went through, not occurrences, but how many chapters. Some chapters will have it more than others. I just want, there's 28 chapters. I started flipping. Oh, chapter 1 has it. Chapter 2 has it. Chapter, and I went and started. By the end, again, just being honest, not like every chapter. It may be. I noticed myself. 12 chapters in the book of Acts contains corporate prayer being modeled. You say, well, Jeff, remember the other day we were talking about we're reading narrative. And when we're reading narrative, does that automatically mean it should be normative for us today? Or these corporate prayer is not only modeled all through the early church beyond the book of Acts and in the epistles. It is commanded. Of the, it is commanded. It is modeled greatly. And yet it's the most neglected. It's so neglected, guys, that on Wednesday nights, when I know we're going to have a prayer night, I don't tell you. We don't put it in the bulletin. I shouldn't say it. You may see it as adult service at 630. Why? Because history has taught pastors, if you announce prayer time... People that will come to a Bible study are not going to come to a prayer time. It ought not be. You say, Jeff, it's just hard. It's awkward. I don't like the way we do it there. Well, how about we keep doing it the way we're doing it here and you keep not doing it the way you've not been doing it? Which is better? There's some people like, oh, no, no, that's awkward and, and, and it's distracting. I can pray at home. You can pray at home, but we're commanded and it's modeled to pray together i got to ask you, if we were to set aside a Wednesday night and announce it as a prayer night, would you come? Would you come? Would you come? Would you be like, Jeff, I can't make all the Wednesday nights, but you know what? I'm going to come to that one. Hey, men, men, if we were to set aside some Saturdays in 2023 for the men to pray corporately, would you come? Ladies. Y'all know that once a month, you have during life group time at 9.30, every month. Is it the first? First Sunday of every month, do you go? I'm not trying to rip you away from your regular life group. Wouldn't do that. But be like, hey, wait a minute. Let me just ask you, in your current schedule, when do you pray with other Christians? If it's like I don't, might all start going to that once a month over there. If we got wild and crazy and set aside a Sunday morning to have a whole lot less preaching and more corporate prayer, would you come or would you punish us for a few weeks? Like, I'm not going back there. Did you see what they did? They had us break out in little circles and they just kind of kicked the thought out from Scripture and had us praying about these specific things. We did it for like an hour and a half, hour and 45. I'm not going there. I wonder where else is going on in the county. Shame on you if you leave. You ought to say, if we're having it, I'm going to be there and I'm going to take part. It matters. No great work for God is ever accomplished apart from prayer. Your last note. Stuart Custer noticed as he's taught through the book of Acts so many times and he wrote a commentary on it. He said this prayer in verse 14 starts a cycle that runs all through the rest of Acts. Here's the cycle. Prayer. They pray. Prayer leads to power. Power is for what? They're all P's. Proclamation. What do you think proclamation is going to lead to from the enemy? 
Persecution. I said it's a cycle. When persecution hits God's people really hard, what do we start doing? More prayer. Write that down. Custer's correct. This does run through the whole book. Prayer. Here starts in verse 14 of chapter 1. It leads to power. That leads to proclamations coming in chapter number 2. Proclamation is going to bring persecution. It's going to lead to more prayer. More prayer is going to lead to more power. Which is going to lead to more proclamation. Which is going to lead to more persecution. Which is going to lead to more prayer. Grace for you, something awesome happens in chapter 2 of Acts. I'm not going to do it justice. And we're going to start digging into the apostles' proclamation. Everybody listen. Something awesome is coming in chapter number 2. Do y'all want something great to happen at Graceview? I mean, like, no, listen, do you, do you, I mean all of it, all this section over here, this section over here, I'm asking you guys, do you guys really want something, I mean, like, truly great for God to do something great, and you guys here, and you all right here, and you back there, and you guys back there, and you guys watching over there, and you all over here, do you really want God to do something great at Graceview? Really ask yourself and be honest, because if the answer is yes, I'm going to tell you, the secret is prayer. The secret, the key is prayer. Last week will not do. Were you here last week? It's partly my fault. It's partly my fault. Was it all my fault? I don't think people were praying for our service last week. And there may be a few of you that were. I prayed. Had some something going on in my life. That will not do. I don't want last week again. I want, I want something real and powerful. I'm begging you. Will you pray for God to do something truly amazing and ask him specifically what you want? Specifically. Ask him urgently. God, urgently. Please do that. Do, ask him urgently. Ask him repeatedly. Ask him privately. Ask him corporately. Get together. Let's say, Lord, we want you to do this. Please do it. Because here's what I find in chapter 1. This prayer precedes a massive spiritual event. This prayer precedes the filling of the Spirit. This prayer shows us that when you don't know what else to do, we're just waiting. What, what should we do? When you don't know what else to do, pray. And I learn in verse 14, prayer unifies people. It never causes division and dissension. Heads bowed, eyes closed. In a moment, I'll just go ahead and I'll pray for our food. We hope you'll join us. Hope you can fellowship. Take just a moment. Check your heart and be honest. Can you honestly say that you are in one accord with God's people this morning? Are you in one accord with God's people? Is there any area of your heart, maybe someone here this morning, maybe somebody in your past, maybe somebody across town, you don't go over there anymore because something happened and you're just not in one accord with them. Can you in your heart say, Lord, as much as is within me, I'm going to live peaceably with everybody. And if you have to sit there and say, no, I'm the problem, 
why I'm not in one accord right now. I'm the issue. Would you just right now confess that specific thing the Holy Spirit puts, it, puts upon your heart? You've been doing that or you've done that and it's your fault or no, we just, just disagree. We're just not on the same page on these other issues, but they're so small compared to what we should be about the fundamentals of the gospel. Are you in one accord with the brothers and sisters in Christ? And I want to ask you, number two, check your heart. Are you devoted to prayer? I have to keep devoting myself to prayer. Got to keep doing it. Are you devoted to it? And then lastly, will you pursue opportunities to pray with other Christians? I'm asking you, based off the example and the commands of Scripture, will you seek out opportunities to pray with us? And as they're presented through our church body, would you avail yourself of those opportunities to pray together and beg God to do something great in your life and great in our church, both here and around the world? Would you be willing to pursue that? I'm going to ask you to stand. Let's pray for our meal. Thank you so much for your attention. As we pray, if you need to clear your heart of something between you and God, let's get ready to go fellowship together and love on each other. Bear one another's burdens if need be, but just fellowship and enjoy each other's company. Regardless of peripheral things that we may disagree on, we're going to be like-minded on the gospel and the Lord and the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for opening your word to us more than was there on Thursday. Lord, I pray that I'll live up to the things. Help me, God. Help me live up to the things that you've impressed upon my heart. Help me to be devoted. Lord, I pray that I will be devoted to prayer, that our pastoral staff and our ministry leaders and our teachers and our worship team, everyone who has a leadership position, I pray, Lord, that we will be absolutely devoted to prayer privately. And then, Lord, may we set a tone to seek opportunities to pray corporately. And God, may we be begging you. I'm asking you to do something greater at Grace View in the very near future than you ever have before. Lord, I pray that you would do that. God, I now thank you for this meal and those that just helped to serve us this morning and will clean up. Lord, I thank you for that. Thank you for providing it. May you bless it in Jesus' name.